dream of shattered hopes and dreams. That's how it feels. Or you find yourself saying, but I, I had hoped, I'd hoped. I'd hoped perhaps that I would have been married by now or, or that I'd been able to get a job or, or a different job or that my uh, health had improved, that I'd been able to get on top of that depression or, or anxiety, that I'd hoped I'd been able to have children. You know, my, my life plan had me having kids by now. I'd hoped I'd be able to finish that course or, or, or perhaps that I'd been able to shake that chronic sickness or I'd hoped, I'd really hoped that I'd been able to save that relationship with my brother or sister or mum or dad or, or close friend. I'd hoped that my parent or my sibling or, or my dear friend hadn't died. I'd really prayed for that. I'd hoped for that. I had, I'd hoped. We've got a long list of these things. I had hoped. I wonder how you would finish that sentence. I'd, I'd hoped for this. Uh, of course, some of us are so burdened by this constant sense of disappointment uh, that we kind of retreat. We retreat into ourselves to try and protect ourselves. We become quite pessimistic about life, cynical, uh, even hopeless. And that's how Jesus' disciples felt. If you've got your Bible open, uh, that's how they felt in verse 21 of Luke 24. Uh, we're not looking at this section of the chapter in detail, but uh, you'll see, if you've got your Bible open, in verse 13, that uh, two of Jesus' disciples are walking to a village called Emmaus, about 11 kilometres from Jerusalem. Uh, and of course, uh, uh, Jesus has just been crucified in Jerusalem. Uh, in verse 15, you see that uh, Jesus himself starts to walk with these disciples, but uh, they're so full of grief and confusion uh, that they don't recognise Jesus. So in verse 16, Jesus asks them, what, what are you talking about? In verse 17, they just, they just stand still. They're in shock. Their, their faces are downcast, you read there. It's like, it's like they're, they're almost paralysed by this mix of confusion and disappointment and grief. They're just, oh, what are you talking about? Why is it? What, what, what's causing this moment in their lives? Well, it's because of verses 19 to 21. They had hoped. They had hoped. They had great hopes for Jesus. Great hopes that he was the Messiah, the promised king, who was, who was finally going to free them from the Romans. But now Jesus has been killed. You can hear the disappointment in their voices in verse 21, can't you? We had hoped. We really had hoped that Jesus was different. That he was going to make a difference. He was going to bring freedom and hope and life, but now he's dead. Uh, many of you here, perhaps, are, are fans of Lord of the Rings. It's maybe getting a bit dated now. Like it was all, anyway. Uh, but to get a sense of what these disciples are feeling, uh, maybe you want to think about Aragorn. You know, Aragorn, the, the great king of Gondor, uh, the one on whom the hopes of all of Middle Earth rested. Right? Imagine if Aragorn, uh, instead of setting Middle-earth free from the evil powers of Sauron, imagine if he had died a humiliating death. Just imagine that. It would have been devastating. Right? Think of Samwise. Poor little Samwise. It would have been shattered, right? right? That's what these disciples are feeling. Right? They had great hopes for Jesus. And now he is dead. They feel hopeless. 
uh, you can see in your outline that uh, I want to explore the, this passage of real hope for the hopeless, the hope Jesus offers us uh, under, the, uh, under six main headings. Uh, I won't take the same amount of time on all of them. The first one's quite long, so don't panic. Uh, but uh, they're all P's. You can see them there. So uh, first, let's have a look at the passage. Uh, let's look in verse 36 and see how this real hope Jesus offers to us, uh, that it is grounded physically. Let's look there in verse 36. Luke says, uh, While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them. So I've given us some context. What are the disciples talking about? Well, if you look back in verse 35, those two disciples from the Emmaus Road have been reporting on what happened. They've been telling about how Jesus appeared to them, how he taught them, how they finally recognized them, recognized him when he broke bread with them. I remember just like he did it at the Last Supper. We saw that last week. So the disciples are chatting about this incredible news. And then in verse 34, at least some of them say it's true. The Lord has risen. And just as they're doing that, all of a sudden, Jesus is standing there. And that's amazing, not just because Jesus is alive. Right? That's a pretty good trick, right? But it's amazing because in John chapter 20, verse 19, uh, we see that the disciples are in that upper room where they'd shared the Passover with Jesus, uh, and they have all the doors locked because they're afraid of the Jewish leaders. You know, Jewish leaders have just killed Jesus, they're followers of Jesus, uh, they're worried that they're next in line. And so they have all the doors locked, chatting about this, and all of a sudden Jesus just appears. Now, these disciples have spent three years with Jesus. Uh, they know that Jesus did lots of amazing stuff, but they know that this has never happened before, right? They've been in and out of lots of buildings, and Jesus, generally speaking, exited and exited rooms in exactly the same way as them, in through the door. Out, like it, He wasn't in the habit of just appearing in rooms that were locked. Right? It's clear not only that Jesus has been raised from the dead, but, it is, but he's been raised in a radically different body. A body that's no longer bound by the limitations of his earthly body that he'd taken on. It's his glorious resurrection body. You see, it's kind of important to remember this because this is not the only account of a resurrection in the Gospels. There are some others, right? In Mark chapter 5, you might remember Jesus raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. In John chapter 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Uh, there's a good quote from C.S. Lewis. Uh, he says, uh, How awful it must have been for poor old Lazarus. Well, we generally think, oh, this is incredible. Lazarus, he must be grateful. He's come back from the dead. Right? How awful it must have been for poor old Lazarus, uh, who'd actually died. Right? He'd gotten that over with, and he was then brought back to go through it all, all over again. You know, the, the, these people who are brought back to life, Jairus' daughter, Lazarus, they're raised in exactly the same earthly bodies with all the limitations. My tiredness, suffering, disease, old age, and then dying and death again. That's not Jesus here in this passage, is it? Jesus has been raised uh, to never die again. He's been raised in a different body, a, a, a glorious resurrection body. Uh, that's why he's able to appear in this room that's locked. Why not bound by certain limitations? 
Uh, Paul speaks about these bodies in 1 Corinthians 15. We talked about this a few weeks back when we looked at the end of the book of Revelation. Uh, But if you want to flick to 1 Corinthians 15, if you're a relatively quick Bible flicker, uh, you can flick to 1 Corinthians 15. Actually, it'd be more that way. Anyway, uh, verse 35, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 35, Paul says this about resurrection, these resurrection bodies. He says, "Uh, But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish, Paul says. That's maybe a bit harsh, but yeah, how foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or or something else. Uh, But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. And if you skip down to verse 42, uh, the body that is sown is perishable, We know that, our bodies are are frail, perishable, we're going to die, Uh, but it's raised imperishable. It's sown in dishonour, but it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, we're all weak, but raised in power. It's sown as a natural body, but it's raised a spiritual body. So there's two big things that Paul's clear. I mean, there's a bit of mystery around these resurrection bodies, but Paul's at least clear on two things. The first is uh, that our physical bodies, uh, your physical body, will not be completely destroyed. The physical body you sit here in today uh, will, in some respects, will go on forever. It's eternal. And that fits with what we see of Jesus' resurrection body in this passage. His disciples can see him and touch him and and verify that it actually is him. It's his physical body. But Paul's also clear that our physical bodies will be really radically transformed. Like a seed becoming a plant. There's a connection, but it's quite different. And so we see in Luke 24 that Christ's body uh, has been radically transformed. And that's important, because if you've got 1 Corinthians 15 open, look in verse 20. Paul says there, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, uh, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Are fallen asleep. If you're confused by that, it's just a picture of death, right? Paul's saying that uh, for Christians, those who believe in Christ, uh, death is really just taking it like taking a nap. Well, you take a nap, and all of a sudden you wake up. Or that's what it's like if you're in Christ. If you trust in Him, uh, you die, and all of a sudden you wake up to be with Christ. Wonderful. You've, uh, those who've fallen asleep, and Paul says uh, that all those who've died uh, in Christ uh, will wake up to, to share in this glorious hope of the resurrection, and he's so sure of that because uh, Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Uh, now, I've never done much farming. Uh, Richard's here today. Uh, he, he's from a farming background. Uh, but I do know that the first fruits of a harvest are just the first batch of the harvest. If, uh, if the farmer is kind of bringing in the harvest uh, and you bring the first fruits in and there's not a whole lot of other harvest coming, it's pretty disappointing. Right? You bring the first batch in, it's a sign that the rest of the harvest is coming. And that's what Paul's saying here about Christ's resurrection. He's saying Christ's resurrection is just the first fruits of a great resurrection harvest. Everyone who believes in Christ will also be raised like him and will share in this glorious resurrection physical body. Now, we're spending lots of time on this point because I do actually think 
uh, that despite the fact that, that lots of people are rejecting organised religion uh, in our country, uh, they are still very interested in what happens when we die. You've even got people in our area, in lots of people in our area trying to communicate with the dead. There are all sorts of kind of psychic readings and tarot cards and all, all sorts of business. But we're very interested in these things. Uh, and so the fact that, that Jesus can stand among his disciples, raised from the dead in his physical body, gives us real insight into what happens when we die. But he tells us that the, the hope Christ promises us after death uh, is not uh, to escape from this physical world, our physical bodies, uh, but it's that this world, our bodies, will be gloriously transformed. Uh, and that is wonderful news. Uh, in his book, uh, If I Were God, I Would End All Pain, uh, John Dixon, Australian author, he, he reflects on this. Uh, I really like it. Uh, it resonated uh, when I was reading it. He reflects on the nature of our hope as Christians. Uh, it's a longish quote, but let me read it. Uh, for many of us, he says, even for some long-term believers, our picture of the kingdom come, that's kind of heaven, uh, derives from an unlikely, unlikely combination of ancient Greek philosophy and modern Hollywood movies. The ancient Greek philosopher Plato taught that this physical world is a kind of grubby reflection of the ultimate non-physical reality, right, to which everything is headed. And somehow Hollywood got hold of this idea and now almost always portrays the afterlife as an airy-fairy, fourth-dimensional existence, uh, of course, with clouds, halos, bright lights, uh, and the ever-present harp music. Right? And Dixon says this, he says, In the years after I came to believe in Christ, I was always troubled by that. It meant that I, I was supposed to enjoy the thought of escaping this physical world and entering a, a spiritual one called heaven. I love the taste, smell, sight, sound, and touch of this world. And here I was being told to look forward to losing those five senses and having them replaced by a, a spiritual sixth sense. I wasn't terribly excited about it. I can relate to that. Then someone challenged him, he says, to point to biblical texts that actually describe the afterlife like that. He couldn't find any. Every passage he turned to challenged the Hollywood version of heaven. It turns out that the kingdom come in the Bible is not an ethereal place of clouds and ghosts, but a tangible place of real existence, a new creation. Right? That's a future that we can get excited about. Jesus stands among his disciples in his physical body. It tells us that the hope he offers us is physical. It's a gloriously transformed body in a gloriously transformed creation. So how, how is that kind of transformation possible? Uh, well, it relates to what Jesus says to his disciples next, to, to the fact that this hope comes through peace, second P. Verse 36, Jesus says, uh, peace be with you. And now on one level, that's just a standard Jewish greeting, you know, shalom, g'day, how's it going? Right? That's kind of like how the Jews related. But here it is much more than that. Right? Because throughout Luke's Gospel, uh, salvation and peace almost always go together. A couple of examples. In Luke 2, verse 29, Jesus is presented to Simeon at the temple. And Simeon says, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace 
Why? For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations. Peace and salvation together. Luke 7, verse 50, Jesus says to the uh, sinful woman who's anointed his feet, uh, he says, your faith has saved you, so go in peace. This happens all through Luke's gospel. Peace and salvation linked together. So, So when Jesus says to his disciples in Luke 24, peace be with you, it's not just g'day, How's it going? Right? He's saying something about salvation. The peace of salvation. What is this peace? That's an important question because if Jesus has come, as Luke 2 says, to, to bring peace on earth, well, why is there so much bloodshed and conflict and violence in the world? Why is it that even we as Christians experience all sorts of worry and anxiety and, and hardships in life? What, what, what's this peace that Jesus offers? Well, of course, it's the peace that he brings between us and God, between sinners and God. Uh, In Colossians 1, Paul says, Colossians 1, 19 and 20, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood, his blood shed on the cross. Uh, the truth is we all know that if someone seriously hurts us, maybe they, maybe, they, maybe they betray you, maybe they wound you, or seriously hurt you, if you're to make peace in that relationship, it will be really costly, won't it? You'll have to bear the cost. You'll have to swallow your anger, your right anger, your, your bitterness, your, your resentment. You will have to swallow to absorb your desire to to keep making them pay for their sins. And the same is true in our relationship with God. Where we've betrayed God, where we've offended God, we've dishonoured God in all sorts of ways. Someone has to pay the cost of peace. Someone has to pay. And here Paul says it's Christ who pays the cost, doesn't he? Christ pays the cost in his blood shed on the cross. That's why in Luke 24, Jesus gets his disciples uh, to touch him, to look at his hands and feet, so they can realize the cost he paid, so that they can be at peace with God. Uh, But notice in Colossians 1 that the Christ's blood doesn't just bring peace between us and God. Uh, Ultimately, Paul says, uh, it will bring peace to all things. The whole creation. Look, uh, through Christ, Paul says, God is reconciling to himself Everything, all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Right now, our world is a bit like uh, someone picked up a crystal vase and dropped it on the ground. Right, it's fractured, it's broken, all sorts of bits. That's our experience of life. It's a mess. And Paul's saying in Christ, through his blood shed on the cross, he's not just reconciling people to God, but he's putting back, to the, putting back together the pieces of our broken world reconciling all things so it fits together in a glorious, wonderful way as it was always intended to, even better than at the beginning. It's through Christ's blood that the God is going to bring this peace to all of, our, all of creation, not just our physical bodies, uh, but a glorious new creation. Uh, so the hope Christ offers us, it's grounded physically, first P, it comes through peace and it comes in the midst of panic. In verses 37 to 39, Jesus appeared 
the disciples were startled and frightened, thinking that they saw a ghost. He said to them, uh, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. So verse 37, uh, Luke says, The disciples are startled. Now, that's probably a bit tame. Elsewhere, that word is translated as terrified. Right, that they are really scared, a bit like if you actually thought you saw a ghost. Right, that's what they—they're in terror. Right, so they, it does raise a question. If you've been reading through Luke 24, how do we put together verse 37 and verse 34? Remember verse 34. I referenced it before. Some of the disciples are saying it's true. Right, that the Lord has risen. And you think, yeah, they've got it. Jesus has been raised from the dead. So you'd think when Jesus appears to them, they'd have it all together, just bow down and worship him, right? But no, they're terrified. Why is that? We don't really know, but it must be because they've understood something about Jesus' resurrection, uh, but they haven't got all the implications of the resurrection. Perhaps they've understood something in their head, they've kind of ticked the box, but it hasn't penetrated their hearts. And that's often the case, isn't it? Like it's one thing to, uh, to believe in the resurrection when you're feeling young and, and fit and healthy. Yeah, I believe in the resurrection. Yeah, no worries. And of course, it's another thing to believe in the resurrection if you get a test result that you really don't want. It's a whole other kettle of fish. Or you get diagnosed with a, a chronic sickness or, or a terminal sickness. You're standing at the, at the graveside of someone you love. It's a different thing to believe in the resurrection then, isn't it? But I think Jesus' disciples kind of get the reality of the resurrection on one level, perhaps in their heads, but, but they haven't really understood in their hearts the reality of the resurrection. Right? So they, they can't really apply it in this, specific, in this circumstance. So when Jesus stands among them, uh, they're panicking. They're panicking. I don't know if you've stopped to think uh, about how the disciples are betrayed in the Gospels. These panicking disciples. It's actually, this, this verse is actually a really good piece of evidence for just how reliable this account is. Right? If you were kind of sitting down, uh, you, you had it as your aim to make up a story about Jesus being raised from the dead. I'm going to make up a story uh, about Jesus being raised from the dead to get power for myself, a bit of prestige. Uh, and so I'm going to make up a story. Uh, would you really have the key leaders in the Jesus movement panicking when they first saw Jesus raised from the dead? Pro probably not, right? Surely you'd have these disciples as kind of pillars of faith and, and confidence and conviction. Right? But this account isn't made up. Right? It's true. So these panicking disciples are included. That, that, that's kind of good. It gives me assurance that it's a reliable account. And it's also great news for us that these panicking disciples are there because we're so often just like them. We're confused and, and full of doubts and we're panicking. Have a look at how Jesus relates to his disciples. Verse 39, he says, look. Take a look, Jesus says. Look, look at the scars in my hands, in my feet. Don't just look, Jesus says, touch, right? feel for yourself. And then he kind of says, think about it. Just, just have a think. If I was just a ghost, Jesus says, there's no way I'd have flesh and bones. Or you couldn't take hold of a, you can't grab hold of a ghost. But his disciples could take hold of him. 
But in his compassion, his patience, Jesus lets his panicking disciples see and touch that he does have flesh and bones. He's so patient with them to offer them this proof of the resurrection. In verses 40 to 43, the proofs just kind of roll on. Have a look in verse 40. Uh, when Jesus had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. Right? The actual showing. And while they did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? This is the meal bit, right? Uh, they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. Right, so verse 40, Jesus shows his disciples hands and feet proves he's not a ghost, they can take hold of him. Uh, but in verse 41, they still don't believe. Right? But now their reasons for belief are at least a bit better. You see that they don't believe because of joy and amazement. Right? It's that moment that they're kind of going, this is just too good to be true. Why would it be like me if Melbourne won the premiership? Like It's kind of like, I just don't believe it because of joy and amazement. Like, it's just too good to be true. Right? That's how his disciples felt. And so Jesus gives them the kind of definitive proof. Give me something to eat, Jesus says. You can almost kind of see the wheels turning. Wait a second. Ghosts don't eat. You know? They give him something to eat. Jesus eats the fish. If you actually look at the clues in this passage, the evidence, it all points to the fact that Jesus' flesh and bones are no longer in that tomb. That's what Luke's, that's what Luke's building the case for. His flesh and bones aren't in the tomb. They're right here with his disciples. Right? This hope Jesus offers us uh, is not a fool's hope. It's not just a crutch for people who are weak. It's not blind faith. It's a hope that comes with proof. Uh, in the book I mentioned earlier, uh, John Dixon, uh, he says this. He says, When I find myself doubting that such a fantastic hope could ever become a reality... I need only go down to the beach near where I live or look up the, at the glorious night sky and remind myself that God already did it once. The proof is right there before my eyes. Why should I doubt God's ability to do it again? If you question God's ability to create new bodies, to create a new creation, just consider the wonder and glory of this creation. God did it once. Why can't he do it again? Dixon continues, uh, but God leaves another piece of evidence in the world to indicate his intention of resurrecting the physical world. It's the resurrection of Christ. Christ's rising to life is central to biblical faith because by it, God shows that he's willing to breathe new life uh, where there is currently death. And listen to this bit. The resurrection of Jesus is God's tangible pledge within history that he intends to do the same for his whole creation at the end of history. I recommend reading that part of that book. It's good. This hope Jesus offers us comes with proof, real proof. And of course it comes uh, only in one person, in a specific person. Uh, verses 44 to 46, uh, Jesus says, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. And then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them that this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. I'll tell you, uh, in verse 44, uh, what Jesus refers to there, that, that's the whole Old Testament. 
Right, the, the law of Moses, Genesis to Deuteronomy, uh, the prophets, kind of Joshua to um, Joshua to Kings, uh, as well as the major and minor prophets, and then Psalms, basically a kind of catch-all for the rest of the Old Testament. Right, so Jesus is saying the whole Old Testament is about Him. Every, all the promises, all the themes, everything comes together in Him, and that would be incredibly arrogant, wouldn't it? Unless Jesus is who He says He is in verse 46. The Messiah, the one who's come to establish and rule over God's kingdom. Right? And by uh, appearing in this room raised from the dead, he's given some pretty good evidence of that. Right? But particularly because verse 46 says the Old Testament predicted that the Messiah would suffer, but then rise from the dead on the third day. Right? The point of these verses, there's lots we could unpack from it, but the point is that Christ is not just the central hero of the Bible story, he's the central hero of the story of the world. Right? If the hopes of Middle Earth rested on the person and work of Aragorn alone, the king of Gondor, the hopes of our world rest on the person and work of Christ alone, the king not just of Gondor, but of the kingdom of God, you see. The Messiah. Uh, finally, this glorious hope uh, found in Christ is something worth proclaiming from verse 46. This is what is written, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, uh, beginning at Jerusalem. Uh, you remember those disciples back in verse 21? Uh, they had hoped, what did they hope? They'd hoped that the Messiah, Jesus was the Messiah, and that he was going to redeem Israel. Right? But Jesus says that this hope that he offers is much too good to be limited to Israel. Right? It's got to be shared, it's got to be proclaimed to all nations, he says. It begins in Jerusalem, sure, but it's got to go out to every nation. And part of the reason why it has to be proclaimed like that is that it's different to, to basically every other religion. You know, this message about Jesus, religion says, live a good life, do the best you can, and maybe one day you just might be able to go to heaven or, or nirvana or, or paradise. Right? That's what religion says. But this message about Jesus says, look at what it says. It says, live in repentance. Right? Admit that you haven't lived a good life, that, that you can't live a good life. You have to repent. You have to turn away from stuff and receive forgiveness. Trust that Christ paid the cost for your sins on the cross. And if you do that, if you live in repentance and forgiveness, you can have the hope, not that you'll escape this world to some nirvana or paradise, but that all the glories of heaven will come to earth. That's the Christian hope. And Jesus' resurrection in this passage is just a taste of that. You go to the great banquet, you walk in the door into the foyer, and you get a little hors d'oeuvre, right? You're like, oh, that's good. But there's more coming. Right? That's Jesus' resurrection. It's just a taste of all the glories of heaven, the great hope that we have. A taste of the hope that Jesus offers to people just like us, ordinary people like his disciples, uh, who so often are confused and troubled and hopeless, you see. Real hope for the hopeless. Uh, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you uh, for all these meals with uh, Jesus that we've looked at. Uh, we thank you in particular for this meal that we've looked at today, a very humble meal there of Jesus eating this piece of broiled fish. But we know it represents so much 
that our Lord Jesus really was uh, raised from the dead, that he lives and reigns and rules. He's alive now. And we know that because he ate that fish. Ghosts don't eat. Uh, Father, we praise you for this great news and we pray that uh, our hearts would be gripped afresh by this hope this day. Please encourage us, we pray, in uh, Christ's name. Amen.